You may have missed this last week, but um, Google announced that it was going to be ending something called third-party cookies on its Chrome uh, browser platform. And Chrome, as you probably do know, is one of the largest, if not the largest, uh, browser right now, and most people use it. It's also an operating system on people's phones, and it's a pretty big deal, and it's pretty uh, pervasive. Uh, Third-party cookies, although that may sound like a euphemism for a, for a swinger party, are in fact have nothing to do with that really. What they are are um, basically digital pieces of code that get put onto your, onto your browser by websites. Cookies uh, and third-party cookies are the fundamental building blocks of the online advertising industry right now. Being able to use third-party cookies is what helps um, small news outlets, uh, for instance, to be able to, to continue to target ads for your local you know, grocery store chain or whatever toward to you as a consumer. And while Google claims that they are uh, doing this for privacy concerns, in reality, I think it's much more um, nefarious than that. I think that one great test for whether or not Google is doing something that is going to be beneficial for you is whether or not they're going to make money off of it. <laughs> and if they're not going to make any money off of it and they're going to do it, then maybe it's going to be beneficial for your privacy. In this instance, I don't think it is because they are they stand to make billions and billions of dollars off of ending third-party cookies. And the reason is pretty simple. Because Google is, the, is one of those two largest online advertising operations uh, on earth right now. Them and Facebook really control uh, the majority of the market, as we have talked about. And by getting rid of third-party cookies, what Google is essentially doing is monopolizing all of that data that you know, your local newspaper or BuzzFeed or the New York Times may have been able to gather for their own advertising purposes uh, uh, into Google. You, they will no longer be able to, to collect any of that data on, on their own. They will have to buy it from Google. And Google is sure as hell going to sell it to them. I recently talked with uh, Luther Lowe, who works with Yelp. And um, I think that our conversation was particularly edifying, although we, this happened before the Google announcement. Um, a lot of what, what uh, Luther had to say about how Google has hurt Yelp, uh, in some cases purposely, in some cases just by its, the very nature of its business model and its monopolistic activities, really can help um, edify what is happening right now to the news industry and ultimately what the danger to um, news operations and to the public, frankly, is from the ending of third-party cookies by Google. But Google is not worrying about your privacy. What Google is worrying about is, is uh, monopolizing as much information, as much data as possible to make money off of it, to make money off of you, to make money off of everything you do, and then to block out everybody else from being able to do that. But again, as we've seen with, with Google and some of their practices on data collection, it's very, uh, uh, rare, honestly, that we should be trusting them to be collecting all this information and to have this vast sort of warehouse of data on us. Um, so the conversation I had with Luther, I think, again, will really help edify a lot of these problems uh, and sort of help explain what it means to be a company dealing with Google and uh, trying to operate on the Internet's you know, advertising platform. I'm John Stanton, and this is The 30. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Um, if you could tell uh, our listeners a little bit about, about yourself and, your, and your, your career, that'd be great. Sure. So uh, I am the Senior Vice President of Public Policy for Yelp. So I help uh, manage all of our issues, including uh, 
promoting protecting free speech online, bringing more open data sets online to, to help consumers. But lately, I've been uh, pretty busy with a lot of uh, issues related to Google antitrust, um, both in Europe and in the United States. Um, before I was doing the, the government relations gig at Yelp, uh, I was uh, involved in uh, democratic politics. Uh, I actually been at Yelp for almost 12 years now. So I moved uh, to San Francisco from Arkansas back in 07 after uh, in between uh, some, some campaigns and uh, just thought I'd pursue a kind of an alternate uh, vision of my life, do, do uh, something in, in the, the tech industry looked kind of intriguing at the time. Interesting stuff was happening on the internet. In fact, actually Google was, was really ushering in uh, this Cambrian explosion of, of interesting things happening online, uh, blogging, user-generated content, uh, social media was all just kind of uh, being born during this era and so many neat services were coming online that it seemed like an interesting time to move to San Francisco. Uh, I was out in San Francisco for uh, a while and then uh, for the last four years, I've actually been based in Washington. You know, I think one of the things... Um one of the reasons we wanted to talk to you was, was to sort of give our, our listeners a, a, a good idea of, of um, sort of how the, 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 the ad practices, particularly of Google and, and uh, Facebook and companies like this, like how they affect businesses. But before we get into that, I, I, there's actually an interesting thing that you just said that, that I think gets lost a lot in the criticism of some of these companies, which is, you know, Google in and of itself is not all necessarily bad, right? Like it is, there's been a lot of really good innovation and um, positive things that have come out of it, right? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think that you, you can break up the, the story of Google. Like the, if I had six months to, uh, to take off, I would write a book entitled uh, How Google Betrayed the Web. And the story goes like this. The, the, Rough, for roughly the first decade of Google's existence, it was this positive force for the open internet. In 1998, Larry Page and Sergey Brin uh, create this technology called PageRank. It's totally different approach to a search engine and uh, looking at kind of the underlying link, links and matching in this sort of mathematically pure way. And it was just so differentiated that it blew AltaVista and Yahoo and all these other search engines uh, of the 90s out of the water. And Google's kind of had this sort of two-pronged promise uh, to, to one set of people, uh, the users of its service. They said, listen, if you use Google, you're probably never going to use AltaVista and Yahoo ever again because it's just going to feel so magical. And to webmasters, i.e. content creators like news and uh, user-generated content uh, aggregators like Yelp, they said, hey, listen, if you just focus on architecting your site in this particular way and focus on cultivating great content, um, you'll be rewarded with an audience. And in fact, in 2004, when Larry Page was, uh, when Google was going public, there was a transcript of an interview that Larry Page gave in their actual S1 documents that they filed before the SEC when they went public that where pages asked, hey, what do you think about all these walled gardens and portals of the time, like AOL and MSN? And Larry Page says, listen, at Google, we take the opposite approach. We want to get you on Google, out into the web and quick, as quickly as possible, 
In fact, that's the whole point. And so what Paige was describing was this turnstile, this idea that mm -hmm. we're virtually 100% of Google's traffic, its first decade, was being diffused out into the web and it, it was unlocking just incredible innovation. And so that's what's sort of like sad about, I mean, I don't know if I would have ever moved to Silicon Valley if it weren't for this incredible environment that it's, is hard to decouple from Google's rise. But, uh, you know, today basically, and in, in by 2007 and with the rise of smartphones, Google began kind of dialing the knobs and now it's done a total 180 such that most traffic landing on Google either terminates on Google or goes to Google secondary pages. And it, it, it has become the walled garden that they once sort of uh, claimed was, you know, the, the thing that they would never become. And so that that's, I think, what's what's going on here. And, and that like that's the the big trend that that then ultimately uh, leads to their ability to dominate the ad markets and so forth. So. Well, there's, there's a certain amount of irony to that, right? Like, I mean, Google, Google's ability to do what it did and, and also Facebook and a lot of other companies is a direct result of the, of the Microsoft antitrust case, right? I mean, it, it, like they kind of, that broke up the, the, that control and made it possible for, for these companies to thrive. And now they've sort of become the thing that they said they weren't going to be. No question. I mean, if you look at the prehistory of Google, uh, six months before... Google was born. Uh, you've got the DOJ bringing uh, a Section 2 uh, act case against uh, Microsoft. And, uh, you know, the, the message to uh, product managers and engineers at Microsoft, at Microsoft was, you know, you guys got to take a break from all this bulldozing into adjacent markets. And I think it really, I mean, you now hear sort of in interviews, uh, people, you know, Brad Smith said this uh, a year or two ago. Uh, Bill Gates uh, said it more recently that it, it sort of it, it put a stop on their ability to uh, leverage their dominance into other markets. They successfully had the operating system and they levered that into Internet Explorer. They could have very easily put pop-up warnings on Internet Explorer, uh, thrown 50 million bucks at research of the PageRank algorithm and developed their own clones and then just steered people using Internet Explorer, which by this point, they'd already killed Netscape. They had 90% market share in Internet Explorer. And you can see this alternate world where Microsoft sort of uh, killed Google in the crib, and the web is, you know, totally different or non-existent in the, in the same way we, you know, we, we had it for a while. Uh, and I, another piece of prehistory that I think is worth noting uh, that relates to this sort of Microsoft point you make is that, Eric Schmidt was, you know, an executive at uh, uh, Sun Microsystems, which was a complainant in the Microsoft case. So he actually sat on the other side of the table of Gates and witnessed uh, firsthand, uh, you know, Microsoft in the 90s was like this behemoth that everybody thought was unstoppable. And Schmidt saw firsthand what potency that, the, that antitrust laws could bring if, if properly enforced. And I think the, that light bulb sort of went on within his first year or so at Google when he realized this thing is unstoppable. We are definitely going to become a monopoly. So my job, in addition to kind of being the adult supervision around here, is just to make sure that we are poaching the, the top economists and lawyers and that their whole job should be just studying the Microsoft lessons and spending all their time 
mitigating the day that we face the A word, the antitrust word, because that's the only thing that can stop the music around here. Huh. So, so they, they actually sort of, they, they, they didn't stumble into this then. They, they really kind of, they knew exactly what was going to happen. I mean, I, I can't think of somebody, you, just understanding Eric Schmidt's, uh, you know, role as an executive who was complaining to the government about Microsoft and then seeing the, its effects. And then, you know, having this fortunate, this sort of uh, fortuitous moment where John Doerr uh, introduces uh, Larry Page and Sergey Brin to Eric Schmidt. They decide he's, um, you know, he'll, he'll be allowed to be brought in as the CEO. And Schmidt saw, I think, recognized very early on. And, and I, I assume this by sort of his early actions, like he, he hired Hal Varian, who was kind of the top industrial organization economist uh, that studied technology uh, in, in the world, really, from Berkeley. And I think Hal's job was like, listen, we just need to optimize this thing to be right up to the line of abusive dominance. Or if we're over the line, make sure things are blurry enough that it's going to take the government, you know, you know, over a decade or, so, or more <laughs> to get its head around this stuff and, and figure out how to come at us. Huh. Yeah. And then by that term, you're so big, it's almost impossible really to, to do anything to you. Right. So, you know, one thing that I'm, I'm curious for you to, or I'd love for you to do for me is, is you know, I think um, having looked at a lot of this stuff, I kind of understand how Google's use and control, I guess, of, its, of the ad market benefits it to the detriment of other, of other industries and other companies. And, you know, obviously for, for me and for my listeners, one of the big things is what it's doing to the, to the news industry. But I was, I was hoping maybe as, you know, you could explain kind of more generically um, for someone who uh, thinks like a four-year-old like myself, uh, what, what, how this works and like, what it, like how, how it is that Google has a monopoly, what that means. Sure. Well, um, the Google's monopoly in general search is, is directly linked to its monopoly in ads. And so I'll try to unpack that. We're basically, um, you know, Google wants to be the middleman in every potential uh, transaction on the web. And this is why they push uh, free Android software to IMs. Uh, this is why they uh, developed their own browser and pushed it aggressively. Because by doing this and sort of um, exploiting what sort of behavioral economists call status quo bias or, or a default bias, where they uh, you know, now spend uh, this year, they spent $12 billion with Apple to have the defaults in iOS. What Google wants to do is ensure that uh, whatever device you purchase, uh, whatever browser you download, uh, Google is powering that search. And so that's a really big part of their dominance because uh, if um, they weren't out there purchasing uh, users, uh, you could vary, and, and people started just from zero and they had to make their own opt-in choice to a search engine, you would imagine that it wouldn't be like on smartphone devices, 98% of people uh, opting for Google. And and the advantage that that gives Google is that it enables Google to generate literally billions and billions of search engine result pages every day. And all the search engine result pages, when you 
think about it from a monetary standpoint is an opportunity to serve uh, an ad or multiple ads for Google. So it, it is inventory that they are selling to advertisers. Now, there's there's other elements of their advertising, uh, including sort of the, their programmatic advertising in uh, that that we can also talk about. But that is the core of their uh, of their monopoly is that this this ability to uh, you know be kind of the over the years position themselves as the middleman for all information seeking on the web and being able to kind of sell ad uh, ads against that. Do we have a sense um, of, of what that means, um, like money-wise or market share-wise, in terms of ad, online advertising? Well, I know that um, there was a recent stat that showed that, what was it, 99 cents of every new dollar in online advertising was going to Google or Facebook. Facebook, obviously, is, I, I, I'm less of a, less, I talk a lot less about Facebook and I'm, and I'm and personally less offended by Facebook because it is always represented itself as a walled garden. And we all kind of voluntarily walked in there, whether that's good for society or not as a uh, separate debate. But that is, um, you know, that that's why I think the Google issue gets me so animated is because this is, it was a giant bait and switch. Um, mm -hmm. it, and so, you know, we are talking about, billions and billions in lost revenues to uh, native ad ecosystems. You know, at Yelp, we thankfully have a native ad ecosystem. All that means is that we, we sell and run our own ads. We don't actually, uh, you know, partner with these sort of programmatic advertising uh, companies for the overwhelming majority of our revenue. It's, it's all built and sold in house. And what that enables, I mean, just to give you an example, using Yelp as an, in terms of advantage to consumers in the market, you know, at Yelp, we don't need a ton of creepy info about a user uh, in order to serve a relevant ad. If I come to Yelp and I do a search for you know, a dentist in San Diego, all Yelp has to do is go to our San Diego bucket and the dentist sub bucket and fish out a relevant ad. I don't need to know your birthday. I don't need to know you know, where you mm -hmm. live and, you know, what, what, are, what you've been searching for for the last three years, I can serve a relevant ad uh, without being creepy. Imagine that. And, <laughs> if there were, if, you know, local searching is a very common type of behavior on the internet. Uh, it happens over 2 billion times a day on planet earth. There's no reason, you know, you know, when we think about that, we should, when we think about, Oh, what are the local search companies out there? TripAdvisor, Yelp, maybe Angie's List, Thumbtack, that we stop at a handful. There should be really lots and lots of competition in this space. That competition enables pluralism to be uh, to exist and people to compete uh, by offering the type of uh, advantages to consumers in, in the form of enhanced privacy. But today, because Google and Facebook as well have kind of salted the fields and are capturing so much of the advertising pie, the digital advertising pie, you're seeing just this profound negative externalities and, and nowhere uh, uh, more than the news business is that uh, kind of more heartbreaking. Well, yeah, I, I, can I also, it seems like 
you know, to, to, to like for, using Yelp as an example, right? I think um, people have, do have to find your web page, though, right? Or they have to find their way to to Yelp, and the way they're going to find their way to Yelp often is going to be through Google. Does have you guys had problems with that? I mean, I mean, if you're essentially competing with them for their for, for those ad dollars that they want. Yeah, of course. I mean, I think the you know Google originally positioned itself as a turnstile that said, "Hey." Come to Google. We're going to send you to the web uh, and match you with the best content out there. And I mean, our company was built on the, uh, in part, on this uh, promise, on this representation that Google made to the marketplace uh, in its uh, SEC documents. And you know, thankfully, Yelp has been able to somewhat weather the storm by having a strong presence uh, on the iPhone with our own app and the some good brand recognition in the US. So people will do what's called disintermediation and, and not go through Google, but go directly through Yelp or, or use, our, uh, use our app. But we still get a lot of our traffic through, through Google. And it's not just, again, about Yelp. It's about the fact that there probably are lots of ideas about how to um, serve up, you know, local knowledge about uh, small businesses to consumers that are, are ideas that are kind of, you know, dying on the back of a napkin or, or never being realized or never being, because nobody's going to invest in those companies because Google, when a mom does a search for a, a pediatrician in, you know, uh, West Bend, uh, Indiana, we're, we're, seeing a giant map box at the top that's solely populated by Google's um, uh, exclusive content. Uh, it's full of spam. They're, the average character counts are lower. It's just objectively lower quality than what is going to be available if you're using the entire World Wide Web uh, as a candidate for relevant results. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I often re refer to this, uh, refer to the, you know, Google and and Facebook as kind of the, the modern day robber barons, you know, that they are very much like the old standard oil or, or um, the steel companies of, of, you know, the, the late 1800s, early 1900s. And to try to make the point that this is, this is what these monopolies now look like. They're not guys with monocles and top hats, but they're sort of quasi friendly looking people like Mark Zuckerberg, you know, um, do, do you think that this is, is that a good analogy or are there fundamental differences between between the, the two examples? I mean, I think that one of the most important differences uh, between sort of the analog world monopolies and the, the monopolies that uh, society is sort of encountering these days, I can't remember, I think it was Tim Wu who told me this anecdote. It's like, if you have a a, a monop you have a firm that is dominant in like lipstick and they've totally vanquished all their competitors, you're going to get all these negative externalities in the form of increased consumer prices and reduced choice. And that sucks. But if you've got a monopoly in sort of, uh, you know, information matchmaking, <laughs> in, in, in other words, in the information sector, if you've got a monopoly in the information sector, your negative externalities are all those th negative things you get in the analog world, but you get uh, your democracy gets totally fucked up in, in addition. Right. And so it's like, 
a really, really serious problem that, um, you know, governments around the world are, are moving far too slowly in dealing with. Well, that's, yeah, that's, it's, uh, you know, the, the, this is not, we're not talking about a company town or a company county or even a company state. We're talking about a company world. Uh, you know, that they want to create, which is, I, I agree with you, I think is, is, is extraordinarily dangerous. And I think, you know, the example of my industry, you know, is, is um, an area that has really been, been hit hard by, by these, these advertising monopolies, you know, and the, their ability to control traffic to our sites and also the revenue that we're able to make off of them. A few months ago, the Wall Street Journal had this piece and it was a really great expose about how Google Maps is just bogged down with millions and millions of fake listings. Basically, because Google doesn't do really anything to combat misinformation on its platforms, be that the Google local business reviews or YouTube, because you have content warehouses that are tethered to this general search monopoly with no real competitive pressure in the marketplace to clean up their acts, you, you just produce all this um, all, you, you open up this just incredible moral hazard and invite all this uh, creation of misinformation. I, at Yelp, you know, we've got a, you know, we lose sleep at night over the thought of sending somebody to uh, a business where we've said, hey, that business, uh, according to our users, is five stars, and you go offline and you have a one star experience. If you do that a couple times, you're never going to use Yelp again. Yet on Google, there's a rampant kind of grade inflation. Everybody, uh, you know, for your DC listeners, the example I use constantly is uh, Tortilla Coast, which is catty corner to the Capitol Hill offices. Uh, you know, it's a, it's like an okay Tex-Mex place. It's a great place to post up and have a um, Negro Medela and some queso and chips. Um, it, is a, it is the last place I would take my family if they were visiting me in Washington. Uh, on vacation, it is a you know solid. It, it earns its three star reputation on Yelp. If you look at the Google ratings for it, it's got a four point two average rating. And so, if you multiply this kind of great inflation out by tens of millions of businesses, think about how that uh, sort of distorts the marketplace in this very common area of search. And again, it's not restricted to local search. This type of market distortion is happening and touching all kinds of industries. How, how much of this do you think is, is purposeful? I mean, I, you know, I think one of the questions I think a lot of people have about this question is, especially when it relates to, to journalism and to the news industry is, do they really, I mean, do they really understand what they're doing? Um, do they not understand what they're doing? Do they care? Are they doing it on purpose for some kind of, you know, power reasons or, or, or what? What do, you, what, do you, what do you suspect or know or think? That's a great question. I don't, um, I, I'm not so sure about the uh, news industry, but I know that, you know, near the end of the first decade of Google, that they, and we know this because it, it came out in some documents that the Federal Trade Commission accidentally released to the public when they weren't supposed to. <laughs> I love it. When and basically, <laughs> Basically, the documents were that when Google was under investigation for antitrust violations, the staff wrote up a big memo, and in it included footnotes citing executive emails. And you kind of get the sense that Google just one day woke up and said, "Okay, we've become this. We're this, you know, 
turnstile to the internet. We send 100% of our traffic to the web. Now let's start going down the list of things people do on Google and let's start entering those business verticals. And you know, a big thing that people do is search for local businesses. Another big thing they do is search for uh, products to buy, uh, obviously looking for current events and news. Uh, actually, a, a story that I uh, think is really important is the one of Getty Images, which was a, a complainant against Google in the European Union. It, it sounds like uh, some of their pressure thank, thankfully worked and Google and Getty were able to reach kind of a, an agreement on how to treat Getty's content in, in an appropriate manner. But I mean, Getty was having to lay off uh, journal, you know, photojournalists in, in war zones because you could go to Google Images and just do a right-click and download a high-res image of uh, this work product. And I think that there is this just kind of Pollyannish um, uh, misunderstanding of what the effects of you know, releasing a a giant web scraper basically and uh, charging a hundred thousand people with organizing the world's information and making it universally uh, useful and, and uh, accessible what that actually means. Um, and I think there, you do wind up um, disrespecting a lot of intellectual property, um, creating an environment where uh <laughs> The, the role of the first estate, fourth estate rather, is is not appreciated, um, and so I don't know the specifics with respect to kind of their their strategies uh, on news, but I know when it came to to local search, they were uh, I wouldn't say looking to extinguish uh, Yelp because you can't totally kill these companies; you have to have something on the web to link to. Uh, <laughs> But, you know, at the bottom of the page, but definitely to kind of keep them at bay while they sort of illegally entered those markets. Well, you know, so you mentioned that that a lot of this information has come out from investigators. Do you think that, that, um, what do you you make, I guess, of of what the federal government is doing so far in in terms of um, antitrust and, and kind of regulating these guys? I think it's, uh, um, you know, I'm really cautiously optimistic. I think, uh, you know, the DOJ is a really serious, has, uh, you know, serious career staff working on these issues. Uh, you know, it's, you shouldn't uh, sleep on the state attorneys general either. They've got a lot of people who are focused on these issues as well. They had a big meeting recently in Colorado with like over a dozen states in attendance. And I think now 51 states and territories have co-signed onto the investigation of Google. So uh, this is a real serious existential threat to Google's uh, uh, business practices, uh, current business practices. Um, It's going to take a while. Uh, They have to basically subpoena a lot of internal information. Google has shown that it's going to do everything it can to slow the processes down. Um, a lot's going to depend on the election results. You know, do, do the folks at the Justice Department still have a mandate to, uh, to pursue this, uh, you know, after November 2020, uh, you know, and how much is going to get done by then? So there's a lot of open questions, but I think generally, like, I'm very optimistic about where everything's going. Europe is, has kind of plowed ahead and is, and is um, kind of at the phase in their cases where, the appeals are finally being heard and, and uh, you know, 
you know, ultimately justice is going to come down one way or the other, uh, you know, whether or not they, they win or lose their appeals. Um, it's not uncommon for these things to take many years, but I think that, uh, kind of over a long enough timeline, we're, we're going it, to, it's impossible to imagine things kind of staying the way they are. Hmm. You know, you, you raise Europe and that, that actually has a, there's an interesting question I, I have there, which it's, it seems like, you know, Europe's pushed to, to create, um, greater privacy, uh, protections for, uh, web users, uh, has had some, some unintended consequences, right? And that, that in a lot of ways, it's almost benefiting companies like Google and they're because they can sort of uh, hoard information essentially because they just are getting so much of what you're doing. Um, could you, could you, am I, am I right in my read of that? And, and could you maybe talk a little bit about sort of where that is? Yeah, I've heard that, um, that GDPR basically um, is in, in heavy-handed regulation is actually beneficial to the incumbents. Um, to be honest, I'm not the, uh, the EU privacy guru. I mean, I will say that, you know, there are uh, folks like Mark Rotenberg and, uh, at Epic and, and others who have pushed back on that a bit and said, you know, this is not, um, the, you know, in some ways these lines... I'm inherently suspicious of because a lot of times it's it's think tanks representatives from think tanks funded by big tech that are saying them. Um, but it really depends. Like I, I think you could argue that is true with the uh, the CCPA, the the California Privacy Protections that are making their way through. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not necessarily in the best position to uh, to commentate on it. Just not only not because I don't think it's important, but because Yelp actually, uh, even though we're one three hundredth the size of Google, we are we do have lawyers. We are thankfully like <laughs> large enough to be able to afford to navigate this stuff. And so I don't truly know. I've never met. I, I'll say I've never met a you know startup CEO that says, "Oh, this is just too onerous," and um, <laughs> I'm uh, you know I'm not able to comply with this or whatever. So okay. I, I don't. I mean, I am generally more of a pro enforcement pro uh, protect consumers with laws uh, you know d- designed to address kind of these you know big tech platforms um, and uh, kind of let the chips fall yeah yeah no and I, I mean I, I think I am too I, I guess my I'm always just so suspicious of anybody that has a lot of power and a lot of um, and a lot of their money and power is built off of knowing things about you, saying that they're looking out for your your privacy somehow. That always just seems like, especially somebody like Google or Facebook that have track records of actually not doing it over and over and over again. You know, like I just, uh, to me, it's always like, it seems like it's just another avenue for them to try to um, consolidate information to make money off of, so. Um, the one, one other thing I wanted to ask you real quick about is, is the, finally on, the, um, on the, 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 the investigation by the states and territories. Um, what, what, what do you make of this, I guess, in terms of, of how serious they are and what they're doing? And does, does that mean something in terms of uh, the seriousness more broadly that, that government is having in terms of finally looking at, at, at Google? Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty optimistic about uh, these developments in 
in the state offices. I mean, the fact that they had a bipartisan, literally every single state except for, I think, California uh, was uh, a participant. And I just think that this is, it, it's going to be really difficult. It's, it's really difficult to imagine that in a year or two, they say, oh, you know, it turns out we didn't find anything there. And I think you've got a lot of um, subject matter expertise in all the different types of antitrust issues that, that Google triggers uh, diffused throughout the country. And, you know, multi-state actions by state attorneys general have an incredible history in our country that's pretty recent. I mean, it, you could argue that uh, AGs brought big tobacco to its knees. Uh, you've got a, uh, the, you know, the legacy of U.S. versus Microsoft, you know, is a lot of similarities with uh, the, the Google saga where FTC sort of took it, look at it, ultimately kind of dropped the ball. In the case of Microsoft, it, they deadlocked on a vote because somebody was recused. And uh, a year or two later, uh, you know, pressured by state AGs, uh, the federal government, the DOJ brought the case. And so I don't think that would have happened without the state AGs. And it, it just seems like we're in a very similar situation. Okay. And I guess last question, just because you raised it, you, you mentioned big tobacco. Are there lessons to be learned from, from big tobacco here? Are there any parallels between what's going on now and that? I mean, obviously there's not maybe necessarily like an imminent physical health risk, but as you say, these, these monopolies are having an effect on our, on our democracy and the health of our society. Absolutely. I mean, I think that the, um, you know, I'm, I'm a new father, relatively new. I've got an 11 month old and, um, you know, I'm not going to be allowing my daughter to watch YouTube or, you know, spend time on, on screens, uh, beyond you know, maybe there might be like special occasions, like in an airplane or something when, when I need to just sort of pacify their attention. But, uh, but you hear this over and over again, that, that Silicon Valley executives are, uh, you know, not allowing their kids to uh, use the products that they that they build, and I, I I definitely think that that you know YouTube or Google's sort of nexus with uh, the addictive uh, nature of these products is of course uh, in, in YouTube and the and the rabbit hole effects and sort of the loops that it sends people down. Um, you know, you're we wouldn't be seeing things like a uh, an explosion of people that believe the world is flat and uh, people not vaccinating their children if if it weren't for YouTube's role in spreading this information. Great. All right. Well, Luther Lowe, I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to talk to us about this and help us figure out um, more of an understanding of how Google is uh, um, creating its monopoly. Thank you very much. Thanks for the time, John. Really enjoyed it. As many of you may know, uh, we here at The 30 and it's the Save Journalism Project are in the process of setting up a new program to help fund freelancers 
to do some work on around some of the issues that we've been talking about on the, on the podcast, including uh, the influence of big tech on the media, uh, as well as um, you know some of the, the things that we will lose uh, if, if we continue to see the layoffs in the industry, uh, whether it's from covering uh, communities of, of color or um, local communities, um, you know, local politics. These are the kind of things that we're going to hope to, to start funding people to do some stories on. But we wanted to give a quick shout out to some of the folks that, that did donate money, um, including these folks who donated $25 or more. Uh, Laura Ruffner, Toby from Seattle, Washington, Marin McKenna from Atlanta, Georgia, two people who just simply wanted to be known as guests. Greg, who did not tell us where he's from, so all the Gregs, thank you. Uh, uh, Shala from Honolulu, Hawaii. Leah Stein from Brooklyn, New York. Robin Mestendrea, sorry for butchering your name, Robin. Jim Causey from Bellevue, Washington. And The Lost Cosmonaut from Halifax, Canada. Because Canada is crazy. Anyway, thank you very much, you guys. Uh, we very much appreciate it.